I would love to hear you kind of just describe to people who haven't read your book your concept of acceptable accuracy. Man, this is why I'm here. This is why I like you, Chris. I tell people this. Whenever I go on a pod, as a guest on a podcast, I say, what's your one takeaway? I bring up acceptable accuracy. And I, at least half the time, get glazed over eyes. It's not sexy enough for them. They don't think it applies. Like, what is this guy talking about? No, we want to know numbers and formulas and twisting knobs to guarantee hits. And I'm trying to tell them that's not what guarantees hits, acceptable accuracy is. And I'm just so thankful that you like that. So thanks, man, first off. Yeah, I love it. Uh, there's a couple ways I could come at it. Uh, generally, what I say acceptable accuracy is what's good enough to hit the target. And it goes back to what's your purpose? What are you doing right now? What's required? And you being in control of, and there's a little bit of a life lesson here, you being in control of the standard of a pass or fail. And so this came out of teaching sniper students for years, military and police sniper students, and trying to shoot offhand or unsupported positions. And we'd be shooting this drill that was called the LAPD drill. We shoot six rounds at 100 yards in different positions under time. And the idea was being able to hit a head target because the North Hollywood shootout, those guys were armored up at the bank, bank robbery and no one could hit them in the face. So we said, all right, I think you should be able to take a rifle, starting at standing and working your way down to kneeling and sitting, just only using your sling, you should be able to put six rounds in the face of a target of 100 yards in 60 seconds, plenty of time. And what I learned through that is the guys that failed at first with that drill was because they're trying to be too precise. And it took me a couple of years to figure out that concept of, oh my goodness, being too precise in precision shooting is actually causing a lot of problems. What they're trying to do is they're trying to hit the dead center of that target. And they're doing that monologue thing I talked about before, a little left, little right, little where I do now. And they jerk the trigger and yank the shot completely off the target where I would then walk down range with them and be standing next to the target. I have my tip of my finger as an aiming point, and I would move the tip of my finger around the target and say, guys, you get to define what's acceptable here. All of us would be happy with a hit anywhere on this steel target. So we now agree that anywhere on this target is acceptable accuracy. It doesn't need to be the dead center. And I'd take the tip of my finger, and I'd start moving it around in kind of a weaving, bobbing motion. And I'd say, if this was your reticle, and it's moving along the target... Why don't you just start applying proper pressure to the trigger and let the gun go off? And then I would hold my finger at the very edge of the steel and say, bang, guys, that's a hit. And I'd do it again on the opposite side, bang, that's a hit. That's good enough for the moment. Why are you guys trying to be the dead center and missing? And so that's why I started refining the concept and the idea and teaching people what I just called acceptable accuracy is you decide if you're hunting that big bull elk and it's at 300 yards and you need to hit the kill zone, well, then do the wind calls, do the elevation adjustments, do the positioning, do the everything you need to be able to do to hit that kill zone, and don't worry about being so dang precise that you end up missing the target. Yeah, I mean, I, I love it. I, when I go back to your book, those are highlighted, and I reread them all the time. So hearing you speak to kind of what reinforces the idea is amazing. It's, it's amazing. Is that the angle you were looking at or you were looking for? I just want to hear you talk about, about <laughs> your stuff. And I, I, I think acceptable accuracy is amazing and so valuable on so many levels. Um, 
There's life lessons there for sure. And and it's almost impossibly hard to embody that. And at the same time, you know, struggle with the ego and the gear thing. And so it's almost like saying, if you could shoot one MOA all day, you'd be the best shooter in the world. Mm -hmm. Acceptable accuracy is very, very hard. And I think that learning that, being able to demonstrate it, Mm-hmm. With standards is a pretty high level skill, but making sure people understand that to begin with would probably streamline their growth too. For sure. Um, well, it comes down to the archery. Everything's wrapped together. I would rather be the guy. I'd always rather be better. So I need to go out and practice with my bow, whatever. There's a big archery shoot coming up at the end of this month up here in Northern Arizona and I should be practicing more. I'm not, but I would always like to be better. But if I had a choice, if Chris had a magic wand and he was going to bestow upon me archery shooting skills and you gave me the option between hitting the dead center, you know, or Robin hooding an arrow, you know, what Robin hooding an arrow is you put one arrow in the back of another arrow. That's how precise you are. If, if I was that good 90% of the time, but 10% of the time I'd miss the entire target or would I rather have the skill to always hit the kill zone? I'd take the ladder. Heck yeah. There's no question. And that's where I'm at now. And there's the acceptable accuracy is to me, I want to hit the kill zone and that's what I focus on. And I actually think, um, since we're picking on someone who's not here, if we polled him or really asked him what was going through his mind at the time, I bet there was a little bit of too much worry on that little tiny dot because every target he and his friend, it was a really not great guy I got to meet and shoot with. They had their binoculars out looking at the foam target to make sure where that circle was. And they were really worried about half yard closer, half yard back on range and things like that. And I, he definitely did that for the target that he missed by four feet. So I wonder if he was less focused on that and instead focused on just being good enough instead of being worried about being too precise if he would not have skipped remembering to dial his dope. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a detour but about yeah. this topic, and a time where recently Frank and I applied acceptable accuracy, that concept, back on something we were doing, it absolutely worked, and it reinforced the idea that I need to step back and work fundamentals and work on my own shooting more, which is something I'm, I'm always striving to do. We did a mountain hunter course at Cameo, and Walt, who runs Cameo, and his son, Austin, Mm -hmm. they're both very, very accomplished shooters in general. Uh, They compete a lot in pistol shooting, uh, and they're both hunters. They set up what they're calling is the ultimate hunter rifleman's challenge or the ultimate hunter. And they made rules because if you set something like that up, you have to define rules. And so the rules that they set up are, you know, it's great, but it limits your gear. So one thing that they don't allow are rear bags or tripods. What they've done is you have a staging area where you start and then you walk a short distance. When you go through a little gate, which is just two markers, the time starts and there are three colored pins in the ground, and they point towards a corresponding 
plate, which is a 12-inch square hung as a diamond. The red target is somewhere inside of 150 yards. The white target is 150 to 300 yards or so. Mm-hmm. And the blue target is 350 to 500 yards, 500 yards max. And then you're scored for hit, hits for time. And then they have a sliding scale of the points if you miss uh, for your follow-up target. Um, and I think that points for time came from their pistol shooting and the fact that time matters when you're hunting. But all the all the plates are the same size. They're 12 inches, and it's 500 yards max. So talking about like two and a half MOA, you know, under under three MOA, but you know, two and a half ish for the far target maximum. But you've got these three zones, right? And then and then here's where Frank came in and was like, "Oh yeah, it's close, middle, far." Um, so. And then they have 10 stages set up where you walk the course like a 3D archery mm-hmm. and, and you keep the, your score, your time and your score. And then they, they divide it hits for time, but it's minimal gear. But the thing is your level of acceptable accuracy is much larger than precision shooters would consider mm-hmm. difficult yet. Precision shooters take so long to set up that their points don't mm-hmm. match the points of somebody who's a good ref- reflex shooter. And so when we went through this, you know, we, we used it as a culminating exercise for our class, but we, we let them use whatever we were teaching for the mountain hunter course. And then we went back through and I thought, okay, I'm going to do it like they intended and realized that, um, you have to completely retool your mindset because of this hits for time. And you can get through it extremely fast. But you have to kind of throw out the idea of there won't be wobble. But if your wobble's in the plate, you're going to hit it. So yeah. you could just you could just offhand shoot the first one, almost just offhand shoot the second one, build a position to get your wobble in the third one, you know. And then instead of dialing dope and ranging, you knew these brackets where you could just kind of hold on the plate still and be. Mm-hmm. Essentially, in it now. If you were, if you could hedge your bets towards, well, that looks like it's closer to 500. You could, you know, essentially put your 500 yard dope on the top of the diamond, mm-hmm. and if it was closer, it's going to fall into it. But you could be extremely fast. But you you have to almost completely disregard everything that people want to obsess about in precision rifle shooting. But you could get through a stage in 30 seconds where guys are taking three minutes. Yeah. And timing out because they haven't set up for their last shot and they're getting their position built perfectly. And so I've I, seen that hunting for sure in real world hunting. Yeah. But I, I think you would really like they do it. I think they do it every month, but it's a really cool course. It's very well set up. And then they change it every month and they have two, they have 20 stages. So they have two locations where they've set this thing up. And the idea is um, it's a kill zone. It's in the hunting distances that people typically hunt here. And if you're competent with your system um, on this, you can have confidence to know that you'll be able to make that shot. And you're, you, you know, you're not obsessing over, you know, that trying to get it at, you know, one inch portion of that. You just need to hit the plate. Yeah. And now uh, I, it was really fun. And, and, I've heard some some negative feedback about the restrictions on gear, but but shoot, like you have to make some definitions. And the fact that 
you could be extremely effective and extremely fast with almost no. I mean, I think that if you could, you could run it with a sling mm-hmm. only, if you have a backpack, there was a couple situations where the pack would have helped. But otherwise, you know, really, if you're effective with a sling and you have good fundamentals, you could get through any stage in 30 seconds. But people were regularly timing out at three minutes. And, and that huge discrepancy to me, it wasn't, oh, well, I need to invest in a $10,000 rifle system or I need to invest in a better rangefinder. You didn't need any of that. Yeah. You only needed the ability to demonstrate acceptable accuracy. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. And I hope it catches on and spreads because... I want to come do it. Hits for time is very important, and it's been overlooked for a while in some of the precision stuff. So anyway, that that was when your voice was echoing in my head. You know what? I bet I could do this with a sling. and Or I I could do this with, if I have a pack. Are there any trees or anything to lean on? Some stages had trees and limbs you could put stuff on. Some some had rocks. It's it's all natural terrain. I could show you some pictures uh, and video that we took of students. Um, I'll text you a couple uh, videos of that. And okay. and then when Frank went through and did his thing, you know there was a, a you know the close target was off. Let's say at nine o'clock, and the middle target was at at, at like two o'clock. And he had a, there was a rock, so he threw his pack down, and he just went, shoot, and then he spun the rifle and shot this left hand, you know, so he went, he went, you know, right-handed, spun the rifle, he didn't need to move his body, shot left-handed, and then the, the other one was straight out, it was like, bang, awesome. bang, bang, and it was, you know, that took 12 seconds or something like, I mean, it was, it was amazing, people were like, mm-hmm. he just shot left-handed, it's like, well, the position's perfect. He didn't need to move. Yeah. He and 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 uh, you know I, I think those those kinds of moments just kind of make you chuckle. Like wow, this this just shows that um, when it comes to thinking and solving a problem, he just blew everybody's mind with you know no need to range, bang, spin it over here, hold high, bang, and then come back here, bang, and he didn't even move. He just moved the rifle to where he needed it and uh, bang, bang, bang. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, this is pretty cool. And you don't see that in a lot of other venues. Um, so I'm hoping to get back there. And, and if you ever come out here and shoot with me, uh, we can make a special trip up to Cameo. And we yeah, can you need to come. Um, yeah. Or we can go meet at one of these matches. And I'm going to talk to Walt on one of these and talk about his ultimate hunter uh, course. But it, it's really fun and pretty unique. And, and uh, the Is it going to be a hunting range. rifle, like not target rifles? Is that a limitation? There are some restrictions on rifle systems. We, we kind of, we may, you know, for, for our class, we, we set the rules based on the, the criteria for the class, not, not his competition. But we did run the course, and then we went through and did it according to his rules. Um, if I was going to, you know, there's, there's nothing to be gained, um, you know, on the internet for bragging about doing well at, at those matches and there's no prizes or anything like that. But if I was going to game it, I would just, I would bring my, uh, 14 inch two, two, three. Um, yeah. And I would just shoot it like that because that would be four, four points, but the, does a shooter really lose with a cheaper factory rifle, you would be slower with a super. To a certain point, 
Factory rifles are to the level now where I don't think you're gaining a whole lot with a custom. I like to make the analogy to car. You're, do you, am I, I don't want to like take up too much of your time, but I have you're good, like man. so many things I can ask you about. All right. It, and it's going to come out of this. I'll, I'll try to make it like flow a little bit here. So, you know, if I was going to game it, I would use a two, two, three, uh, you know, or some kind of DMR rifle. If I was going to go hunting, I would just take whatever I wanted. And if I was thinking about competition, um, I, I don't know. I, I guess it depends on the competition. But a question that comes up in my mind a lot. And, and taken the other way, I think you or me with a $1,000 Tika rifle will surely outshoot a beginner with a custom rifle. So I have some custom rifles. And I can tell a difference when I'm, when I look at shooting with stacking of inaccuracies, I think I mentioned that in my book, I don't think things add accuracy. I think they remove inaccuracy or a better term would be unprecision, but we know what we're talking about here is a certain chassis or a stock doesn't make the rifle more accurate. It takes away some of the variations or, you know, if I, I'm taking these concentric circles, I'm using my hands here for people that can't see you know, the ammo can shoot maybe a half minute of angle, but the rifle can shoot a quarter minute of angle. As you stack those circles along each other, and then you add the shooter, which is always going to be less accurate than the rifle system. Every rifle, even the worst, worst shooting rifle you can imagine at a garage sale covered in rust, shoots better by itself than with a shooter on it. You start adding all these inaccuracies to the system. Having a precision custom rifle that takes one of those circles and cuts it in half, yeah, sure, it makes a difference for the super professional that's trying to shoot the pretty group. But when it comes to me talking about that good enough accuracy or hitting that one minute of angle at 500 yards, a good enough factory rifle and good enough factory ammunition is more than capable of hitting that one minute of angle target at 500 yards. And the reason you will have missed is because your lack of competence not the equipment. And when it comes to custom rifles, I actually see more problems sometimes. Having tolerance is so ridiculously tight and perfect, lends itself to malfunctions, lends itself to being sensitive to cleaning, lends itself to being sensitive to a certain cartridge or a certain bullet weight or a certain load or a certain whatever. You know, one of the things I think was so magic about 6.5 Creedmoor, even though it took me so long to come over to it, was it's... In my opinion, the right proportion and combination of dimensions where any middle of the road 6.5 Creedmoor ammo at the store, not the cheapest stuff and not the most expensive, nicest stuff, but the middle of the road stuff and any middle of the road rifle that you would find at a Cabela's is going to shoot well. And we didn't used to have that. Just 10 years prior, that wasn't true with the 308. That middle-of-the-road rifle with that middle-of-the-road ammo might have been horrible, but if you switched the combination to this other brand of ammo, it might have shot great. And I think that has to do with we figured out with water manufacturing how to make these tolerances better, how to make a cartridge dimensions and designs better to where that it's more forgiving in almost every rifle. And I think people spend way too much money on these custom things, depending on what they're trying to get into shooting. And I think that $1,000 Tika or even the Ruger Precision Rifle with good enough ammo is plenty. Does, does that does that jive with what you what you think, Chris, or how you're seeing it? Well, I mean, I, what I think doesn't matter as much to me is is what you think because I want to hear 
other people's ideas. I mean, I, I could argue both sides, like like you can yeah. argue both sides, but I think like you suggested, I'm not seeing a lot of downside in some factory rifles. And I, I can give some examples, but sometimes people will say, well, wow, that's really expensive. Um, some factory rifles are $2,000. Um, I shot uh, Springfield, one of their lightweight carbon rifles. I've shot a couple of them. Was that the waypoint? The waypoints. Mm-hmm. And they were as accurate as any rifle I own. Mm-hmm. I've shot um, a guy I know here locally. He had a, a cheaper rifle and it didn't shoot very well and he couldn't just get it. It just was a fit thing. So he mm-hmm. sold it and got a different rifle, and he got a Tika. And the first five rounds, so the way I zero is mm-hmm. I bore sight it, and I'm usually pretty good that I'll, I'll get it on paper, and I, I draw an aim dot, and then I shoot, and then I take the, the impact, and then I dial it back to center, and then I shoot that hole. And the first five rounds through that rifle were in the same hole. And it continued to shoot. Yeah. And it was it was cheap American Eagle, 6.5 Creedmoor. Um, I don't I don't know what uh he, he ordered a barreled action and he put it in um a chassis that he had. Mm-hmm. But I, I just don't I could say like, wow, you know, that the action doesn't feel like my Kelblies or my action doesn't feel like my old surgeon, which is like <laughs> that's a subjective like wow i like the smoothness of the feel of that but shit it it opens it loads there was no feeding problems i could run it just as fast it just didn't feel yeah quite as like buttery smooth yeah but in the end whatever rifle i had it didn't shoot any different then and that got me kind of it reinforced this idea of um where where is that line? Where's that inflection point? Because, because for sure, you're not going to take just a, you know, run to Cabela's and then go win a big F-class competition. Correct. Or an ELR competition. Or a but you're not going to win a car race by going and getting a Toyota Corolla. Right. But right. if your goal is to get to work safely and reliably, that Toyota Corolla is going to do it the same as the Mercedes. It's just the Mercedes is going to have nicer leather seats. Yeah. And might sound nicer here and look a little nicer there. Yeah. But it, and it's it's like man, if 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 I can lay down or get on a bench and produce a sub MOA five or ten shot group, um, what what am I losing? You know, mm-hmm. for for the most part, like you're saying, like your stacking tolerances and the shooter is is massively more the issue. You know, if I take a half inch group from my custom rifle and a and a three quarter inch group from the the factory rifle, but I say, but I add two inches or three inches. Well, sh- shoot, I'm going to add two or three inches to either rifle. So now we're talking about a quarter of an inch difference, and a quarter of an yeah. inch off of a three inch group <laughs> is two and three quarters. So, well, um, I mean, there's a difference though. There, that's a difference, and it's measurable, yeah. and. You know, so there's a difference. The question I think you're asking is return on your money. 
Yeah, I, I think the I, first thousand dollars of a rifle goes a long way. Mm -hmm. The second thousand dollars in a rifle doesn't go near as far, and the third thousand dollars is difficult to measure, if at all. I, so, like, I'm, I'm one of those guys that, as I get older, I get more sentimental, and like, I have all these memorabilia and tokens and things that I've collected over, you know, my life doing stuff with guys that mean stuff that are really important to me. And one of those things that I appreciate now with firearms is. You know, I want nice rifles, not because I'm, I plan on taking it to something and, you know, that's yeah. the only thing that's going to do the job. I have expensive rifles because it means something to me. You know, I want... And you like them, and they're fun. Those meaningful things. But if, if push yeah. came to shove, you know, I would take basically any rifle I own to any competition and feel yeah. like I could perform with it. So I think those are two yeah. completely different questions. And I... I have a, you know, you mentioned factory rifles 10 years ago. I have a, I, and I mentioned it a lot. I, um, I don't have it here right now. Otherwise I'd hold it up. I got a, a old Remington 700 P. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have cut the barrel down to 18 inches. Awesome. Um, it, I put any 308 ammo in it and it'll mm -hmm. shoot sub minute. All day, all night. The only thing I don't yeah. like about those old Remington 700s is the bolt is so it's it's so short that and I put it between my first two fingers. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's hard for me to run that bolt yeah. fast. But um, if it had a if the bolt handle was twice as long, shoot, I it's in 308, but it, it's incredibly accurate. It probably has twenty thousand rounds through it, and still just you know, there's there's nothing it can't do. You know, I I I I, I drilled, I screwed in a cheek riser, um, a long time ago, and I don't even know if I need it anymore. The thing is, freaking awesome. I did bet it, um, but it it can't be more than six or seven hundred dollars, no matter what, and um, yeah. Yeah, it's an internal magazine. You could upgrade mm -hmm. parts of it, but it's it's just as good as anything. And so I don't. Well, for my rifle, for years was that my early NSSF videos were a 700P with the barrel cut down to 18 inches. Exactly what you're talking about. I mean, and I even back then made my cheek rest out of a one. I took my pocket knife out and I whittled down a one by two, and I drilled holes in the stock and I put nails through it. The nails would center in the holes and lift up and out so I could clean it. I made, you know, that cheek rest out of wood and put it underneath the cheek rest. And that's what I taught on and used forever. And I agree with you. It was a workhorse of a rifle. And you know why it ended up one day not shooting near as well and not being near as reliable? Because I screwed with it. Because I thought I had the opportunity one time. So this is when I used to work at Remington. And one of the companies we acquired was Dakota. And we had the Remington Custom Shop. We had all this. And... um Montana Rifleman Barrels and all these companies together. They said, well, Mr. Collector, we, we could put a custom barrel on that for you. Would you like that? Oh, well, why wouldn't I? Oh, and so-and-so over here can bet it for you. I know and so-and-so over here can put the detachable you know, bottom metal on it. I replaced the barrel, had it bedded, detachable bottom metal, and then they Cerakoted it for me after they did the work. I love running a bolt quickly, like I think you do. They Cerakoted the bolt, so it was just this gummy, sticky 
not enjoyable thing to shoot anymore where my bolt was just slick because of how many years that I've been, te- it was my teaching rifle I'd teach on and have out there. That thing was highly polished just by use. The magazines wouldn't feed right because the front of the magazines, the bottom metal wasn't the right angle. So that every once in a while they would catch on the feed lip and my accuracy went to crap. <laughs> it was all because I went custom and tried to fix something that wasn't broken. Yeah, it's, it's funny how that stuff kind of works. I don't know, man. I, I, I wish, still I, I, wish I never did that. Old. I love that rifle. I still, you know, I still look for some of those older, um, man, there's, and then there's a guy that, that accuratizes them in California and he puts the submarine shit on them. It, the, I think those look really nice. I want to get one of those, but uh, some of those kind of old classics, I would love to have one that's not as beat up as mine. Like one of these days I'm going to, and then I'm just going to put it on the wall, you know, and shoot it. But, but it's got to shoot. Like, I don't want things that, that don't actually yeah. shoot, but, but I, so what's good enough for you right now, someone came to you and said, I have $3,000 to spend $4,000 to spend. That's all I can afford. I want a rifle and rings and base and glass and maybe a little bit of ammo to get started shooting. And they want something factory. Is, are there some factory rifles? Do you kind of draw a line in the tiers of factory rifles where this line and above will be fine? And if so, where do, where do you draw that? I, I, I honestly, I don't, I don't like test a lot of factory rifles, but, but having seen what the Tikas are doing right now, I think mm-hmm. that those are probably what I would push people towards. And I would say like, get that yeah. and an affordable chassis. I think chassis prices are coming down a little bit compared to some mm-hmm. stocks. I think stocks look nicer than chassis, but you know, if, if um, and then if they had $4,000, I would say like get a couple thousand dollars in ammo and, <laughs> yeah. and, and shoot it. Um, I'm a big proponent of getting a nicer scope than a rifle. So it's really learning. Yeah, but there's so many but, nice scopes too. I mean, factory rifles fine. And my argument is the resale. It's hard to sell a used scope. It's easy to sell a used rifle. Interesting. Yeah. I don't, so I, I don't buy the scope that, that I can grow into, and I could, if I need to, and tell someone you can always upgrade the rifle under the scope. But it's hard to upgrade the scope. You're not going to get your money back out of it. You know, people just don't like buying used scopes. Um, but yeah, Tika's the same for me. I did one of those NSSF videos where it was a one. My favorite video I ever filmed for them was 20 minutes of one take. Poor guy's cameraman's arms were about to fall off. He had one of those steady cams. Mm-hmm. I said, hey, let's just walk through how I zero a rifle. Let's not do any cuts. Let's not do any camera angles. Let's just, let's just roll with it. So I walk down to the target. And I'm talking as if you're there with me at the range. And okay, come back and do it. And I make a mistake. I, I adjust incorrectly. And I look at the camera and say, oops, I screwed up. Let's figure out how I screwed up and why I screwed up and correct from that. So we have made it a learning point. We get down. We get done with the video. I'm like, ah, oh, that was good enough. Okay, I'm, I'm happy with that. And it's a wrap. And the video comes out. You know, like six months later or something, where they edit it. And it wasn't until then that I realized, man, my, my memory, I was a lot harder on myself. We ended up shooting, I don't know, five rounds group, I think, as the final group to confirm. And same thing, they're a ragged hole in 6.5 Creedmoor. That was an out-of-the-box rifle. I pulled it out of the box. I pulled the scope out of the box. I slapped the scope on the rifle, and I pulled out a factory, I think, like Hornady Black, which is middle tier, you know, ammunition and did that. And I referenced that video for the same as you're making a reference. If that's what you want to do, it's good enough. Maybe I think the summary here, if I could have a takeaway from this, Chris, this conversation is 
stop chasing the equipment. You know, my and your competence with the rifle is independent of the brand of the rifle. And I wish people focused more on becoming competent with regardless of the rifle in their hands was rather than they have to have this exact combination recipe of parts in order to perform. You know, like a pistol shooter, a good pistol shooter can shoot a Glock accurately. A guy who thinks he's a good pistol shooter can only shoot a 1911 accurately. He needs that super short, crisp, straight back trigger in order to get performance. You give him anything other than that and he falls apart. I think that's kind of what I mean here. You know, competence versus ability to perform with only that equipment. Yes. But I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here. I have seen what a good gunsmith or good gunsmiths can produce. And it is amazing what somebody who knows what they're doing can produce and then be able to have you demonstrate with their systems that high level stuff that people are doing, setting world records, you know, doing the race car stuff. Uh, There's a guy recently came out. um, I had two friends come out and he's, he's actually near you. I don't know if you know, uh, Kenny, he's a gunsmith in Arizona. Um, I shot a few of the rifles that he put together and, and he measures everything and trues it and ta- you know gets everything just right. Unfired rifles, he brought them out so that we could do a little video. And I was, I've been messing around with air guns too, but, but that's another conversation. He said that you know, he's been looking at rimfire stuff and he had this idea that that some of the things people were doing to test ammo lots and do this stuff was overlooking some of the smithing work that he thought he could do. So he built some rifles, and, and I heard from a couple people that were shooting them. Um, I think half of the 22s going to Worlds from the U.S. and Canada are, are he put together and bench rest rifles, and, and wow. he works with, a lot with with various disciplines building the the the, you know, they're awesome little race cars. So, but anyway, I thought, God, I got to see this for myself. So we got, I dug up just random 22 ammo and we zeroed it at 50 yards and every box that we shot put 10 whole groups into the same bullet hole. Just yeah, every box. And I thought, well, wait, well, why are people sorting boxes and lots and sending their rifles away to get tested and trued. And he said, well, because, you know, the tolerances here and there and the measurements are loose enough where that you can find one that just happens to shoot good. He goes, but if these are done right, it doesn't matter at 50 yards. And and he demonstrated that to me with, with two rifles. And then, and then he said, but we can show it at 200 yards that these ammos are different because of the SDs. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were still accurate, and but you could see the differences in the ammo opening up a distance, mm-hmm. which makes sense to me with ballistics. But at 50 yards, all of them, you really couldn't measure. I mean, it just looked like a ragged hole yeah. for all of them. I thought, well, shoot, this is amazing. So then mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, but you know, what about like centerfire? So he had centerfire rifles, un- unshot, same thing. Factory ammo. Just hammering it in the same hole. Now, when we did positional stuff and and all that, all of a sudden, enter the shooter and the groups mm-hmm. open up. But when we just went for our best ten shot groups, 
literally just didn't matter what the ammo was. It was just whole, 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 whole. And I thought, holy smokes. I think that's the difference that you see with a custom rifle builder that knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet people can't usually drive them in a way that could really take advantage of that because I think, you know, from rifle craft testing, you know, it's about three and a half MOA mm-hmm. is where the average person that does the rifle craft stuff and submits their targets is about three and a half MOA. So I would, you know, my, my guess is, you know, and that that's people that care about shooting enough to do this kind of stuff. So, you know, it's yeah. got to be worse than that. But I would say like, you know. And it's I, the ones that aren't too embarrassed to submit their target. <laughs> yeah. If we're going to do multi-position target shooting and just have everybody that shoots be, you know, hitting most of the time, it's going to have to be about three and a half MOA. Um, and those people can bring it down if they have a correction. But, you know, I, I encourage people to take that out of their skill versus just be able to correct and put a small group in. Because, you know, right, um, um, it's the accuracy and precision conversation. You could, you might be able to produce from any position a very tight group, but it wanders around your aim point. And if you uh-huh. put all those together, um, then it's a big group. And if you can make a correction off of a sighter, you could probably drill a small target over and over again from that if you don't have to rebuild the position. Problem is that first shot, that wasn't wind, that was you. And and people misidentify that. And I think that then you're not really growing. You're, you're telling yourself that you missed because of wind, but it was you, and then you corrected and you hit the target. But now if you take that wind hold to the next target and rebuild a position, you're going to be on the other side of the plate, and then you're going to have to make a correction. And, and and so there's a lot of corrections being made thinking it's wind instead of um, you're doing something fundamentally inconsistent in your position building, and then you're repeatable. Um, you know, I think that that's a fascinating conversation, but that's, again, like that that's beyond most things. But so the factory rifle versus the custom rifle, like you can see the difference, but most people yeah. can't shoot the difference. Um, I don't think you're but, being devil's advocate. I think we're actually saying the same thing. I think that first thousand I said that is the most effective. At zero, you're throwing a rock, and a thousand dollars later, you're submitting in the mangle. So that first thousand gets you a lot. The yeah. second thousand gets you a little bit better. That third thousand, and so it's whatever analogy you want to make. You know, the race cars or guitars. A professional guitarist can see the difference between, or a professional violinist can see the difference between these ridiculously handmade, custom, perfect violins. Or if I want to learn guitar, I should go to the store and get one that's good enough, and that's going to take me my whole journey in, in playing guitar. I don't necessarily need, but there's a difference. You can see the difference. It can be measured, but whether someone needs it or not, I think is the question. Yeah, and it's cool to be able to have something and say, like, look, yeah. if you want to see something that's really tight, you know, but you, you, you know, you've also got to be able to apply the fundamentals the right way. Um, so yeah, yeah man, I, I still, there's some factory rifles I want to get because I just want to have one. Some of them, they're hard to find now, but, um, and then there's some custom rifles that I want to get mostly because I want to have things from those good builders as an example, whether or not I use them more than yeah. just at the, at the range. But, but those workhorse rifles, I think there's something to be said for the, for those factory rifles now are being produced at such a high level and they can take so much abuse. The 308, obviously, you can get uh, 
ton more rounds through those barrels before um, things start to go south. The Creedmoor, 65 Creedmoor, I've, I've had 4,000 rounds before I really saw a degradation of, of something. So, so I think that's still a, a really good, good option. I think that some of them, but again, like some people, they'll never shoot out a barrel in their shooting life. So what do they get? If that's yes. the case, I, man, it, it's pretty hard to argue with some of the um, factory rifles that are good now. Again, but things change too, so you never know. Like I, I would hate to say, like I would get this rifle, and then something changes in the manufacturing or sourcing of parts and materials. Oh, for sure. And we can't always. You can never say, but yeah. Yeah, but right now, I, I have seen, if I, if somebody said you have to buy a factory rifle, I would, I would buy one of those Tikas. Um, I would get a Tika, um, the TAC A1, longer bolt handle, a little nicer barrel. And I put one in a KRG Bravo stock, which is kind of a stock slash chassis. They're like inexpensive, pretty entry level for KRG. Gives you the detachable bottom metal with the AI magazines. I have that set together right now, and that is my most loaned out rifle for people for shooting. And it is the go-to works. It's not finicky. I don't even know when the last time I've cleaned it. I should admit that. It just is a workhorse of rifle that shoots every single time. What I was going to say when you mentioned barrel is I need you to buffer me here. Let me know if I'm off base. Okay. The barrel life argument drives me nuts. When people argue about, well, this barrel is going to burn out faster than that barrel. It's going to burn out. Well, I want the barrel life for this one. One reason the argument drives me nuts is what you already said. Most people never even get close to the life of their barrel. Second, you're getting a race car and you're arguing that you don't want race car A because it's going to go through tires faster than race car B. <laughs> the point of this thing is to burn rubber. The point of this thing is to wear the dang barrel out. Shoot it. Who cares? I would, I would don't pick or choose a caliber or a rifle based on whether the barrel is going to burn out faster or not. I just don't. If that's the caliber for me that I decided that I needed for a particular purpose, then I change the barrel when I need to change the barrel. Am I am I a little too cavalier on that? No, I, I don't. I don't think so at all. I think that um, you just need to know that ahead of time. And I I think the the way I put it is that barrels are disposable. So seven hundred dollars is a new barrel. I'm just making up a number, but my guess is they're tires. Yeah, yeah, it's seven hundred dollars. Like how how many if, if if the rifles that you're shooting right now in this economy are two dollars a shot, but mm-hmm. you're spending so much more money to shoot out that barrel than a new barrel mm-hmm. that $700 yeah. you shouldn't be too concerned about. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't want, I don't want this car because man, it's fast and it's everything I want. Everything other variable of this car is what I want, but I just think it's so powerful that I might go through tires too quick. Right. Right. Just buy well, the new tires. You need the new tires. Even if it gets a thousand rounds and it's $2 yeah. a shot, you just spent $2,000 on ammo. Exactly. Why, why yeah. wouldn't you just spend 700 for two? Exactly. Barrels? My point. Yeah. Or, or three barrels and um or the cost of the rifle in the first place. You're already buying such an expensive rifle. You know, the same analogy for the car with the car expensive car, expensive gas, all that. I just don't get it. The other thing I like people do is shoot their barrel first. I know a lot of guys that'll get that Remington seven hundred, for example, and they'll get they want to get this barrel and they buy the rifle brand new and they buy the barrel brand new and then they hire a gunsmith to put it on. I try and encourage people shoot the barrel that's on it first. Because it, it, it might be a shooter. Yeah. That 700P, 
I ruined it when I changed the barrel. If you're getting a 700P and you want a cool carbon fiber proof barrel, great. Why don't you get the 700P though and spend a few years getting good? Mm-hmm. And then if you're going to waste rounds, if you're going to you know waste your youth on bad shots as you figure out how to get better and better, why not waste them on the, the factory barrel before you unscrew it and throw it in the trash can? Oh, yeah. I mean, that would be crazy to just throw away. Something like that would be nuts. That, 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 but that happens all the time. These guys that get these, these semi-custom rifles, barrel comes off and goes in the trash can, and the custom barrel goes on. I'm like, you know, it's got a pretty name, and it looks cool, but... I know this guy named Chris Way. He's, he has a 700P that shoots really good. <laughs> oh, yeah. why, why not shoot that barrel out? Yeah. Yeah. So cool, man. Yeah, that's, yeah, man. I, that, I, I, yeah, I, it makes me want to try. Well, I don't know. One of these, one of these days I'll find one. So I got to go like backwoods Alaska and try to find like some of those, a new older rifle like the 700P or the, um, get another one. And some of the old Accuracy International, I, you know, my workhorse rifles really are the Accuracy Internationals because barrel swap, caliber swap is so easy. But mm-hmm. um, Do you have any experience with the MRADs? No. So I, I wanted to hate the MRAD, and I actually did. I didn't want to. I did. I, did, I disliked it because it looked like a 2 by 6 you know, from Home Depot in my shoulder. And I like a sexy race car of a rifle. I, I like undergunning. So I love showing up to even a three gun competition or any kind of shooting match or any undergunned and then outperforming expectations rather than showing up with the nicest gun and underperforming. Yeah. Um, but I love running the bolt fast. So I love like a slick bolt. I love the, the, the grip of the feel of a standard rifle stock still for me for shooting just because my experience on it. And I looked at the MRAD and it's just an ugly two by six with a pistol grip sticking down and a thumb safety. Like, oh, that to me, that was the antithesis of accuracy. And at the time when I left the military, Barrett in my mind was synonymous with the 50 cal. Matter of fact, you would even say that. You'd say, hey, we're going to the range today. What are we going to bring? Oh, we're going to bring the 300 win mags and the Barretts. Barrett just meant 50 cal. Yeah. And those 50 caliber rifles were dumpster of angle. You know, they, when they worked, mm-hmm. they malfunctioned on me often. The, the, the thing fires like a pogo stick with the barrel bouncing in the, the receiver on springs. It, it, it just was as inaccurate as can be. So in my mind, Barrett was not accurate. I saw the MRAD. It's this big clunky thing. And you could change the barrels and change calibers. And that just, to me, consistency is accuracy. And that's not consistency. It took me a few years to finally get around to trying one. And now that's kind of my go-to workhorse because the old Action Nationals, I saw the British snipers carrying them, and they could use them as tools to make their way up the mountain as more than walking sticks, right? And they would still shoot great. It was amazing. And now I think that's kind of, for me, that's the next evolution of them is I've done some of my more impressive shooting lately in an MRAD with a barrel that I just put in with a torque wrench a couple of minutes ago you know, in, let's say 300 PRC, that's my mile gun. And although it looks like a clunky thing for precision wise, I, I, I can't beat that. So I'm either going towards that for the workhorse, again, a factory rifle or like the Tikas or something like that. And I'm not part of any of those companies. I hope everyone knows that I have no, no association with those companies, but yeah. 
Yeah, I think um, speaking of 50 cal, the, the, there was a long range competition in Wyoming recently. They, they called it, I think it's the Hornady ELR or something like that. It's not, it's not really extreme long range, but it's like 2,000 yards and in or something. And Accuracy International came out and they trued up their guns. And I think the guys that won were actually shooting MRADs. But, you know, like the top 10 or 20, it was like a couple of MRADs and, and then the rest were AIs. I think, you know, that, that says something for those bigger, bigger calibers that people are shooting. Um, but uh, Thunder Beast brought out a 50 cal suppressor. It was like two feet long. And uh, yeah. it's, it was, uh, it had ports on it. And then, and then uh, AI brought out a short barrel like it's what I don't know if they call it like their covert or their something 50 breaks down freaking tiny, but it was a 15 inch 50 cal barrel. <laughs> and, you know, 20 inch suppressor and the rifle was very light and um, we shot it and the sound uh, we have footage of it too. It's it, you can't really relay what the sound is like, but imagine a unsuppressed twenty-two. Um, I don't know if you would call that hearing safe. You know, people wear hearing pro, and some people don't. I took off all my hearing pro and got right next to the end of the um, suppressor and filmed the guy shooting. It was the same volume to me as an unsuppressed twenty-two shooting a 750 grain, you know, a tip at, is the bullet getting supersonic in that barrel length? Yeah. 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 It was, I think it was 2550 or something like that. Um, okay. Or 20, I, I still mean, know 50 cal burn rates or how much powder it takes to get that big piece of mass up to speed. And it's a 15 inch barrel, but, but the way That's that they saying. built the suppressor, yeah. it could, the burn would continue in the can. Oh, okay. And so they were getting, but, but dude, it was quiet. And, um, I mean, obviously it's a 50 cal, so you're going to get some recoil, but it was nothing like I expected. It was very soft and extremely quiet, but it was supersonic. Um, but it, it was pretty cool to shoot and see that just in a light, light platform. Yeah. Cause you think 50 cal, you think, oh man, I mean, I've seen you just do your offhand 50 cal, a thousand yard shot. Um, that got taken down like 10 years ago. I'm surprised you've seen it. Heck yeah, I've seen it. Well, that was out for like a year, and then YouTube took it down. Uh, no, man, that's that's freaking baller. But the um, but this one, you know, it kind of was just like, wow, okay, I could literally, I would never want to or imagine a scenario where you actually would just shoot it offhand. But the fact that you could is says something about the the rifle system. And so I was like, yeah. wow, that's amazing, you know, this big ass thing, and and. Uh, it was it was pretty entertaining, and at first, you know, when they said, "Oh, we brought out the fifty cal," I thought, "Oh, fuck! All right, I'm gonna go shoot over there and ignore yeah. these guys." But then they start shooting it, and I was like, "Wait, that thing is quiet," and and not only that, but it was really soft, you know, or it felt soft for something that big. Um, but uh, man, now we completely lost track of all this stuff. But uh, shit, um, let's. We, we went to the Jason and I model. We just sat here and riffed about guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, we should probably cut it off so I could chop. Well, this actually we flowed really well. I might, I might just put this whole thing out unedited, and 
maybe schedule another time to, to talk like those little niches. But before I do that, um, I haven't kept up with you recently about um, Gun University or books or projects. So like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing right now? That's pretty cool. And people want to hear about like projects you're involved with. I'm finally starting my second book or getting good progress on it. I should say <laughs> it's been a long time. Um, one of those is I attribute to my, my um, newly wife woman in my life has been awesome for motivation and direction and helping take a lot of this, the things off my plate to allow me to focus on getting stuff done. Gun University is still probably my biggest project. So Rocket FFL and Gun University take most of my time. I still keep some legal clients. I've been, I don't know, man, it's been a rough two years probably of me just out of the loop a bit, trying to get stuff in life settled, trying to get organized on things for, you know, business and stuff like that. I have a company I'm starting that I, I probably shouldn't talk about yet. It's a software company. The books are coming. So the second shooting book I'm getting done as almost as a chore and the two reasons I think it's been such a delay, well, three reasons, is one, personal life stuff. But another reason is I have a bit of imposter syndrome with that book, that second book. So the beginning stuff I can rattle off. I have no problem labeling myself as the guy that can teach you the basics in the beginning stuff. But the second book I was calling the advanced long-range shooting book. And I had some serious imposter syndrome problems with it. Like, who am I to talk about advanced stuff? You know, the beginning stuff I don't need to look up. I can just type, stare at the screen and type. And it comes out of my brain. The advanced stuff, I have to stop and research and figure it out myself. And I'm like, well, if I don't even know it down pat, and how am I going to be the one to teach it? And you got to go, I went through that for a while. And the other was, it felt like a little bit of a chore because I, I loved inspiring new people to get into shooting where it's not as exciting teaching guys that already know how to shoot, how to shoot a little bit better. So I know I needed to get that done. But believe it or not, the other books I have, I'm way more excited about. I, I'm writing... Um, kind of like sniper life lesson books that I have all outlined and ready to go. But I know that I can't bring those out first. So I need to get the second book, second long range shooting book first. And then, then I'll be bringing those, I don't know, big picture, how to, how to do life, how to be a man, how shooting applies to life, stuff like that books. Awesome. Well, that's fun. Would, would I, I, I go to Gun university to look things up, but would you explain kind of just a, a overview of like how, how to, how can people use it as a, quick reference resource website because because I don't know if my listeners are aware of it, even though we talked about it last time we well, talked. Thanks for the plug. Yeah. Um, um, just just mention like how it could be helpful and useful. Gun University's goal is to tell the truth about firearms. And if you've ever tried to look up a review on a certain firearm to see if it was worth you spending your hard-earned money on. For example, I think the Taurus Judge is one of the stupidest firearms that exists. It's fun. It's a 410 revolver. Yay for that. But let's say for a concealed carry. I think it's a bad option for concealed carry. Okay? I use that as an example because when I'm talking to people, I ask them to pull out their smartphone. I say, okay, Google Taurus Judge review for me. And you'll have two to three to four pages of Google results of every gun blog out there saying how it is the best gun ever and it is the best for concealed carry and it's devastating stopping power and yada, yada, yada. And I say, look at that. 
And hopefully the person I'm talking to agrees with me that it's not a good concealed carry gun. If you're listening and you think it is and I offended you, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. Um, if that person agrees with me, that's not a good concealed carry gun. I would say, well, then how in the world is a new shooter supposed to go through four pages of Google results of seeming professionals telling them it's the best thing ever? If you rely just on this, that's what you got there carrying. And I think some guns are bad. Some guns suck. And so my business partner, Dave, and I came together and decided, let's make this place called Gun University where you can come learn about guns for free. And we have a horrible business model. The business model is it's all free with no advertising. There's not a single ad anywhere on the website. There's no advertising money. There's, we don't sell anything. I mean, actually, I take that back. There are some online courses there for sale, but that's not anything for revenue for us. We just write articles and say, this gun's good. This gun's bad. We give guns report cards. We grade them on your accuracy, reliability, value, things like that. And right on the homepage, you can scroll down and click on bad guns. And the guns are ranked by letter grades, you know, like you're in a school, like a university. You can see all the guns that we gave an F to and a D to and a C minus to and things like that. So hopefully it's a place that you trust to get opinions about firearms and learn about guns. That's so awesome. I think that's cool as hell. Man, I wish I could afford to not have advertising and all that stuff. Although I, the people that support this podcast, I trust in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. It would be cool to, to not have to do that kind well, of thing. Well, for me, for advertising, I don't think there's anything wrong with advertising. I want to I want to defend you for a second, Chris. I, I didn't mean to make that about, like, it's bad that you do. I just, on a, no, no, no. On a website where I review guns... Yeah. When I when I read that the for example the Taurus Judge is the best concealed carry gun ever, I'm usually reading on an article that has a banner ad for Taurus on that page. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. And that's yeah, why that, I realized we were like we, we can't take advertising. We can't because if I'm ever writing and I'm worried I'm going to lose an advertiser over it, I can't do it. And so I can't right. believe I still have manufacturers send me guns. You know, so Springfield's announcing their new pistol this week. And it's already leaked yesterday. Some information out there leaked already. Well, I've had one, and I've been putting it through its paces and testing it and taking pictures of it and written up my reviews, and it's all ready to publish. I can't believe these manufacturers will still send me guns because they know they're sending Ryan Kleckner a gun. There's a good chance, because I tell them that when they email me, hey, can we send you a gun? I say, sure, but you got to take it back. I'm not keeping it because I can't say that you gave me a gun for free. And you're sending it to me fully knowing that I might not like it. And I can't believe that manufacturers, some manufacturers still say, we get it. We'll, we'll roll the dice. Here you go. Yeah, but that's cool. I mean, yeah, it's you know, fun. something about you also and your character and, and that people trust you and the elements that you look for in rifle systems. I, I mean, I think it's a cool site. And I think that if more people use that, there'd be fewer random questions. And <laughs> well, thanks, we man. can get away from some of the other types of review stuff that you see in, in, in all industries that you're like, yeah. wait a minute, if you, you know, what I think is funny is you know, every, everybody listening is an expert in their field, whatever that is. Yeah. And they wouldn't go online and agree with most places and reviews about the thing that they're an expert at, but then they seem to forget that when they look at something else. Yes. So, I say that with the news. Has the news ever talked about a topic, you know, on the news on TV, ever talked about a topic that you're a subject matter expert in? If so, you know how wrong they were on everything. But for some reason, you forget that when you're listening to the other 98% of the stuff they're talking about and assume that what they're saying must be true. 
Yeah. Or, yeah. You know, all of a sudden, yeah, so, like, oh, I got this. I got this Remington 700P, but I hear I need barrel XY put on it because Amazon reviews has five stars. <laughs> Well, that's another thing we did. We so we started it, and we're we're flattered that some of the other bigger websites have now copied it. So that's a good. We we like that. That's okay because again, we're not doing advertising revenue. Um, we made a Rotten Tomatoes section of the site. So we actually, with the software, actually had to come up with the software and made it to where I rank a gun. So let's say I say a gun gets a B minus, and this is the report card on why I gave this gun a B minus. A couple of years ago, we added a section for you to come on and tell me why I'm wrong. And not just in the comments. You can say, nope, I think it deserves a this grade. And so we have like a Rotten Tomatoes score. We have Ryan's review of this gun. He gave it an a, a B minus, but 157 readers give it an A plus. So you can see kind well, of awesome. unbiased or not. Yeah, we think so. It's fun. That's cool. But it also keeps things down to your users and stuff instead of bots and AI or whatever it is. People worry about nowadays. Man, I think that's cool. I, I and I like things that are novel and different instead of everybody kind of doing the same thing all the time. So I think that site is cool because it's different. There aren't a lot of sites like that, and it's a really easy reference when you know looking something up. Like, what is that? Or I, I think it's pretty cool. So when are you going to write for us, Chris? When when are you going to give us write some articles or some content for Gun University? You tell me, man. I'll, you need something? I'll do it. Well, a lot of the things. There's some things we do just for search purposes because it's a business, right? To try and get people to to visit, right, or to, to look at stuff, or try and show products or certain things like that. But some of the other topics we write are just stuff we wanted to write. So if there's something on your heart about acceptable accuracy or something that you wanted to write and you don't know where you want to publish or you want a place for it, come see us. I'd, I'd love to publish something from you. Heck yeah. Well, we'll chat about that. I always have things to say. <laughs> you know, well, that's how we found each other, right? When you wrote the first, the first time I, I think I found you is you wrote an article about wanting to argue with me. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Fucker. Like, I was like, I, I wanted to, it was like you and the MRAD. Like, I wanted to disagree with you so bad, but every time you were right, I'm like, man, okay. <laughs> well, thanks, it's, right. it's, it's all me. Like, I can't come up with any new excuses, um, which is amazing. But it's nice to know that there's people out there you could talk to, and whether you agree with them or not, they're coming from a good place, and, and that. I like that. Those are the kind of people I like to keep around. And, and yeah. you, know, you, you don't have a problem disagreeing with me, correcting me, or, or anything because it, it's coming from a good place and it's not you just trying to make yourself look good. It's, it's you trying to make mm -hmm. the world a little bit better. And the firearm world always seems like it has these opportunities to like fall into hot lava. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and, and it's cool that, that you know, there are people trying to do the right thing because it's the right thing. And, and I, I like that. And you do fun stuff. And, and um, it's cool to hear about all the other stuff that people do, even though this podcast is about shooting. It's fun, fun to know that, like, you know, everybody that I know and like in shooting, they're, they're doing all sorts of cool stuff separate from shooting because that's what, that's what makes them fun and interesting people. 
and and um yeah and you're, you're one of those guys thanks man <laughs>